Hi, everybody. Jose Luis Morales here. Welcome back to another episode of the Residual Real Estate Agent Show. Today, we've got a very special guest, uh, Max Fisher. Uh, he is a commercial real estate agent at BRD Realty. He is based out of Tucson, Arizona. And today, he's going to be talking to us about land assembly strategies, uh, land assembly techniques, assemblage, and also land development. In other words, how can you take different parcels of lands or different buildings, potentially put them together and build something a lot bigger? Welcome to the show, Max. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Jose. Super excited about this. So for our viewers that don't know who you are, who is Max and how did you get involved in this wonderful world of uh, commercial real estate? Yeah. So uh, my niche is um, industrial. My website's industrialtucson.com if you'd like to learn a little bit more. Um, but most of what we do is uh, manufacturing, distribution, um, industrial business parks, and then also some land and uh, land assemblages is like a, a side niche of mine. And, uh, you know, I got, I got into the business uh, about eight years ago. And uh, for the past four years, consistently closed uh, more than 75 transactions. Now, let's get to the topic. Like for our viewers who don't know what land assembly or assemblage is, what is an assemblage and what does that even mean? Because I didn't find out about this uh, till like maybe like five or six years ago. I went like my entire career not knowing about it, but uh, a friend of mine kind of explained it to me, but I imagine a lot of our viewers don't know what it is and want to learn more about it. Yeah. So basically, uh, most of the time in assemblage, the end goal would be to develop, um, you know, a vertical um, high rise or one big property. But to do that, you have to assemble all these little properties to build this one big building. So that's what an assemblage is. A lot of the time you're going to have um, like an up zone. So, for example, uh, you know, if you assembled an entire block of single family residences with the intention of building up with, say, an apartment complex with some retail on the ground level. How hard is it to do an assemblage? It almost seems like like for me, like sometimes we're talking to homeowners like, yeah, I may sell. Yeah, I may not sell. I would imagine to get property owners like back to back to back to all want to sell would be a little bit more difficult. Um, what does that process look like? Is it a difficult process? And what in how do you entice somebody to maybe want to do it? Yeah, uh, it is a very difficult process. Um, and really, I think the difficulty goes with how much time you have. So, you know, if this is, uh, say, a 10-year process, that makes it a little bit easier for me. Um, you know, if there's some type of catalyst that, you know, shortens that time period, it's going to make it more challenging. And I think really at the root of it, to be successful in assemblage, you have to find out what each property owner's trigger is. And the trigger is not always money. Um, so for example, you know, some commercial sales that I've done on assemblage, you have a manufacturing business that's been there. It's very costly for them to, uh, move all their machinery 
So we can do, say, a sale leaseback where my client buys the property, the manufacturer leases it back for a certain amount of time until they uh, find a new building or build a new building. So I think it's all about finding what the triggers are for each seller. You know, it's funny when I think of assemblage, I think of a, um, I forgot what movie it is, but there's like a big building and then there's like a little house in the middle, like somebody who didn't participate in the land assemblage or in the assemblage and they built all around him. And then there's like this little tiny house, like of this person just saying, no, I'm not moving. No, I'm not going anywhere. If you build, you build around me. So that's kind of what I, what I think about. Yeah. I mean, you know, with every assemblage, you're going to run into, you're bound to run into someone like that. And, you know, it could turn into a uh, situation like that, but ideally not. How does somebody determine like, um, is there anything I should be looking for? Like, let's say that I want to build like a multi-unit apartment, like a high density, like what should I be looking for? Or let's say I want to, uh, develop something or how do I know that, uh, it, it would make sense to make an assemblage in a certain location? In other words, I would say, you know, I mean, first of all, an assemblage is for like, a a pretty sophisticated developer um, and that developers going to have to be well capitalized. Um, a lot of times they're going to have to have, you know, some political um, connections as well um, because the rezoning process tends to get a little political. I would say, you know, on the commercial side, you know, one project that I've worked on recently, it's, um, an industrial area. So industrial prices tend to be less than retail. So you assemble it at a lower price because it's industrial and then you rezone or, you know, you go through this entitlement process to build a retail center. So I would say looking for maybe an obsolete area or obsolete buildings that are all together with the end goal of improving that say block. What about like whenever you're putting these together, does everybody know what you're doing or is it almost better to almost keep it private and just go to each homeowner individually? Cause I imagine this is just my imagination that if, if I'm a homeowner, I find out that they're, they've got 10 other owners locked in already and I'm the last one I may be able to, and, and let's say I'm the missing piece of the puzzle, I may be able to ask for more money. How does that process typically work? Is there good practices, bad practices, or what's the best way to kind of go about that? Yeah. So, I mean, really, if you're the last one left on a block, um, it's not necessarily a good position or a bad position for that seller, because like you said earlier, do you want to be the last homeowner in the middle of some you know, new high rise or new retail development? Uh, probably not. Um, so to go back to the first part of your question, is it best to, you know, share what's going on or not? Every assemblage is different. Um, I've been on both sides of that. So you really have to tailor your approach and your strategy based off of, you know, what everyone in the area already knows. So in some cases, some of the homeowners or neighbors are going to talk and they're already going to know, hey, look, this is kind of what they're looking to do. Um, I know that you said that uh, it's different for every homeowner, like just different motivation, motivational uh, factors. 
Um, a lot of times are the homeowners walking away with more money than they normally would have uh, had they sold it individually because the value of them all together is worth more than them individually because of the potential upzoning or the ability to build something larger? Yeah, I would say for the most part, um, again, that goes back to the timeline. If it's a 10-year timeline, then, you know, the developer or whoever's assembling the properties, you know, they may not need to pay a premium. They just pay for market. But yeah, I mean, sometimes you see that. And then what about like, let's say that uh, there's some upzoning that needs to be uh, taken care of in order for the assemblage to work. Is the goal just to get the properties in escrows, get the upzoning, make it like a longer escrow? Um, or is it to get them in escrow, close on them, then get the upzoning? Or what's the best strategy there? Or what have you kind of seen in that uh, area? Yeah, so I mean, if you have a small handful of properties or a few properties to assemble, you know, that could be reasonable where you tie them up, put them in escrow for maybe a year or two um, and incentivize them, you know, maybe with like some, some hard, uh, hard earnest money deposit or something of that sort. But when you get to assemblages where there's, you know, a lot of properties, you pretty much have to close on them. Um, no seller is going to want to, you know, drag out an escrow a year or two and the, the entitlement process is, takes years, so no homeowner is going to take that risk, especially in an environment like we're in right now. Yeah, where we're home home prices have increased or whatever because they could be tying it up now and two years later it could be worth more or it could be worth less as well too. So there's kind of like a little bit of a risk on, on the, both ends. How does a developer protect themselves if, if they do make it a longer escrow? or closing on something that maybe is not upzoned yet. Cause I imagine if they close on something, then they're not able to get the entitlement. There's some additional risk factors that obviously have to be factored in uh, there. Or are most of the developers, whenever they do use this strategy, are they like pretty much like a hundred percent confident? Like, Hey, look, this got a 99% chance that it will uh, absolutely go through. Yeah. I mean, it's big risk, big reward. So when you look at, you know, the margins that developers make, they're, you know, they, they typically make great money, but it's, that's the risk that comes with it. What are some of the like mistakes that you've seen when somebody is assembling like pieces of land or maybe some of the lessons that you've kind of seen maybe from other people that you've learned personally along the way as to what to do and what not to do? I mean, really the first is talking too much. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, the best negotiators out there, they don't talk too much. They do a lot of listening and ask a lot of questions and only come in, you know, when they need to. So I, I would say being quiet, listening, being monotone, having a poker face, not divulging too much. Those are really the fundamentals. What would be an example of somebody divulging too much or talking too much or almost like talking themselves out of a deal? Yeah, um, I've got a great example of that. So there is a deal where this is two other brokers, they agreed to terms, put the property in escrow, and then in inspections found that there was like $50,000 worth of um, electrical work that needed to be done. So the buyer's broker sends that bid over to the seller and, or to the seller's broker, and uh, the seller's broker talks to his seller, they get on a call and, uh, 
the buyer, before they even ask for anything, the seller's broker gets really upset and he says, yeah, don't worry about it. I figured it out. I got my seller down $50,000. But the buyer's broker, all that they were going to ask for is like a $10,000 price reduction. So without even, you know, the buyer's broker was smart because he didn't say anything. He didn't show his cards first or anything like that. But the seller just came out hot and just started talking. You know, it's so funny. It actually happened to us on a residential deal uh, recently where um, we were in a request for repairs and it's smaller money, but it was a $9,000 request for repairs for items that came up. And as we're talking to the other broker, the other broker says, uh, yeah, my clients already bought some flooring and they've already bought this and this and this for the property. And they were threatening canceling. But as soon as we heard that, we're like, our seller had actually agreed to us to do a little bit of a higher amount. But when we went back to them and we heard this, we kind of went back to them with a much lower number and they accepted it. But I think that's a perfect example of somebody divulging uh, too much. Is there such a thing as divulging too much information as it relates to the project that is going to be built? Is that such a thing as well, too? Like going to the homeowners and saying, hey, look, we're going to build this uh, 10, 40 story building. It's going to be 400 units. It's going to be worth $40 million once it's complete. And uh, we're going to offer you 200,000 for your property. Is there such a thing where people actually uh, do something like that? Or, or I guess if there isn't, what would be the best approach for approaching homeowners individually? Like, meaning like, can you give us maybe an example of a conversation like that as to what that would uh, look like directly to a homeowner? Yeah. I mean, that's probably the worst thing that you could do in an assembly is just tell everyone, you know, all the details on the project. Um, I always like to keep it, you know, you have to be honest, but at the same time, you can't, you know, you don't want to like tell all the details on the project. So being vague is best really, but people, they're going to feel your energy. They're going to hear your tone. They're, they're going to know when you're bullshitting. So, I mean, it's important to be straightforward, but, um, vague. What about like, can you maybe like, can we have a conversation? Like maybe like pretend like I'm a homeowner uh, and maybe just on a residential property, we're looking to upzone it to high density or maybe a, I own a commercial building. Can you maybe approach me and kind of like uh, what you would say to me just so that other people somewhat have an idea as to how this uh, process actually works? Uh, sure. I'll um give you an example of something that I'm working on right now where you know, all the neighbors in the area, they know what's going on because it's been in the newspaper and it's been on the news. And um, so that makes my job a little more challenging when talking to the sellers. So they already have this this expectation of what's happening there. So they're not just gonna sell to, you know, someone that wants to pay market. They, they like expect a premium. Um, so, you know, I would call them up. I would uh, let them know who I am, who I represent. And that, uh, you know, they'd like to buy your property. And um, is there anything that we can do to, you know, satisfy the terms that you would like? And, um, you know, sometimes they'll come back with a certain number. Typically that number is high. And, um, you know, I'll usually counter them with a price that's a little more than what their property is worth, but not nearly what they're, they're asking for and let them know that, you know, time is on our side. The market's really hot right now. Do you want to take advantage 
of the market while it's hot. There's a lot changing out there. Here's an offer. It's, it's a little bit more than what it's worth now. That's kind of a general idea. Anytime that you can um, identify something that would um, create some type of urgency, that's you always need to be looking for that. And for me right now, it's the market. That's the truth. Like, here's a strong offer. You take a look at what the market's doing right now. Do you want to sell or no? Time's on our side, not your side. And what would you say would be like a typical markup for something like this? Like a strong offer, is that like 10% above market value, 30% above market value? Like, is, are there any rules of thumbs as to what we should be offering somebody? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, maybe 10%, but uh, every every deal is different. So it could vary. So basically on a $700,000 house, maybe like 770, 10% of that million dollar house, maybe like 110, somewhere in that ballpark. But obviously it varies by different. What are some of the different terms that you hear from homeowners? Because I know that I deal with a lot of sellers and sometimes, like you said earlier on, earlier on, different sellers have different motivations. For some people, this may be a family home that's been around since the 60s and they've owned it for a really long time. So do you ever get like any special requests that are outside of potential money? Like, Hey, look, like I could stay in the building or I can, or I can, uh, what's like the weirdest request you've ever had from somebody? I would say a church. It's not too often that I deal with residential property, but, um, I would say a church. And, um, so the, this church is very ingrained with the immediate community around there. So, mm -hmm. and this negotiation is is still going on, but we're close. But, um, you know, basically finding a property in that neighborhood for the buyer to buy and then purchasing their existing property. So basically helping them find a replacement property that way they can make them make this an easier transition. So just help in assisting uh, with replacement property. Yeah. I mean, if their property is worth half a million, you know, and we offer them a million, it still doesn't matter to them. Like th their religion is their life. And, you know, we respect that. We understand that. We understand how much of an impact they make on that exact neighborhood. So we want to, you know, the goal is to keep them in that neighborhood, but buy that property. So that's what we do. Yeah. What, what's the largest um, uh, amount of homeowners that you've ever had to put together to create an assemblage? And what's like the smallest maybe? Um, so it was all commercial properties and there were probably 30 or 40 businesses. And how, how long would something like that typically take? It's been a probably a four year process here. Wow. And then for something like that, you usually close on it and then be closing on the properties individually or make it like a longer type of uh, escrow. Yeah. Um, no, we, we just close on them. There's no contingencies on the actual project. But the thing is, too, is that it wouldn't be smart to, if a, if a building's worth a million bucks, it wouldn't be smart to go in and buy it for two or three million. But if we have years to do that, then we're going to buy it for market or just a little bit more than market. And, um, you know, if the project doesn't go as planned, then uh, you, know, you can still sell that property and you're not losing your shirt on it. But usually these projects, they're already teed up and very confident. So... And some of these assemblages could be like, like years down the line, like meaning like 
I because you know what's funny? Um, I didn't really understand assemblages, but I started kind of looking at some of the projects that were happening in Ventura County, which is the area that I'm at. And then I kind of started seeing that some of the people that are doing like these large developments, they bought a property like in the 1970s. Then in the 1980s, they brought the property next door. And then in the 1990s, they bought a next one. And then in the 2000s, they bought it until they were able to assemble the whole thing. So some of these assemblages could take a long time, in other words, basically. Yeah, some of them can take that long. And, you know, there's some really smart, this isn't always just a, um, just some, like a corporate type of project. Like I've seen local owners say, you know, on a busy road, an auto mechanic, he buys his shop and then, you know, the property next door comes for sale. He buys that one. And then, you know, 20 years later, he's got five properties that you back know, he to didn't back. even spend a million bucks on it. And now because he's got, you know, three curb cuts on a six lane street, McDonald's wants that piece. So it's, it's not always, you know, 10, 20, $50 million projects. Something as simple as that could be a, a cool little assemblage. And then back to our earlier example, like, there's some risk, obviously, if you close on it, because there's some risk that you may not be able to close on all of them. But like you said, if that does happen, then you would just sell the property, maybe take a small loss, like 10% or whatever, um, or hold on to it more longer, longer term. Have, have you seen situations where um, people make offers, close on them, and then the assemblage doesn't end up working out and they, they end up reselling or just kind of holding on to the properties? Not that I can think of. Okay. Most of the ones are like for sure deals, the ones that you've uh, seen. Yeah. Well, there is, uh, do you know, um, uh, Blackstone? The, yeah. Yeah. The, um, they actually did an assemblage here in Tucson and, uh, one of my clients refused to sell to Blackstone and they just built, you know, this, it's probably like eight stories of mixed use project right behind it. So, you know, you do what you can, but if there's a few people out, you just go forward. You know, I gave one strategy or one example of, you know, when all the property owners already know what the project is and all the intentions and all that. There are situations where that's not the case. Um, in that case, you know, you're probably not going to, it's not the smartest thing to go to all the property owners and, um, you know, tell them about the project and whatnot. But um, in that case, what, some people have done is act as like a what you call a straw buyer so mm -hmm. create like an llc or a corporation you know buy those properties without necessarily disclosing the the end goal yeah i heard that i don't know if it was blackstone or walt disney or somebody did something like that or i think it was maybe even amazon that did something like that one is a prime example because you think about those buildings a lot of those distribution centers are a million square feet. I mean, where it's super difficult in this market to find, you know, I, it's probably about 80 acres is what you would need to build a million square feet, you know, maybe a little less, but, uh, good luck finding land, uh, you know, vacant land that size. Yeah. That's awesome. Now, what about a scenario, Max? Like, can you maybe give us a scenario? Like, so obviously for that example that we talked about earlier, the uh, most of the people already knew um, that there was going to be some sort of building happening. How would you approach a homeowner where nobody really knows what's kind of going on? Like, what would that 
kind of look like? Every situation is different. I mean, I would just reach out to them and just see if they have any interest in selling. And, um, you know, let them speak, really. I mean, just ask them, you know. What just, hey, are you interested in selling? What would motivate them to sell it? And, uh, yeah. That's I awesome. I mean, really the key is to ask more questions and be quiet. That makes that makes sense. Good. Uh, and then last question, like what would you be your best piece of advice or any final words for if somebody's looking to kind of put uh, assemblages together? Uh, any tips or tricks or anything else that you think would be uh, helpful for our viewers? Just, you know, look for areas that are underutilized or where they where you think there could be a, you know, a vertical play, say retail on the bottom, multifamily floors up from there. That's a pretty popular project right now or you know obsolete properties on the main you know arterial road say you know some old auto shops or something like that you know maybe quick trip will come in and buy it once you have it assembled but just look for obsolete areas with high traffic or some industrial some rough industrial areas where you can assemble a large piece yeah. And, and here's one thing that I did forget. What about conversations with the city? Like as you're kind of putting these together, um, how important is, uh, kind of keeping the city up to date or kind of keeping them involved or kind of seeing what is possible. And is there ever a time where like the city goes, Hey, look, yes, you can do this or no, you can't do that. Or what are some of the obstacles that you guys face with the, with the different cities or municipalities? Yeah. I mean, I don't really get too involved on that side of it. That's really more on the developer side. But, you know, I, generally speaking, there are municipalities where there's no point in even trying to assemble just because they're so anti-development. Um, and then there are some municipalities where, you know, they're more pro-development. So I would say keeping that in mind. But, I mean, other than that, you know, the developers, they're going to have civil engineers, um, you know, on their staff or, you know, uh, that they work closely with. That's really on the developer. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you, what is the best way for somebody to get a hold of you? Uh, my website, industrialtucson.com. There's a little contact form on there. That's awesome. Cool, Max. Well, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate, obviously, you sharing. Uh, today, we had Max Fisher uh, with BRD Realty. He explained to us land assembly techniques, land assembly strategies, land development, and assemblages as well, too. For all of our viewers out there, if you are new to the channel, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And then if you feel that this video would add any sort of value, make sure to hit that share button and make sure to share it with people. So hopefully we can have episode two when I'm done with one of these assemblies soon here. Um, it's going to be a, a high rise um, entertainment related. So um, hopefully in the future we can go over how it all happened. And uh, it's a really exciting project. So I would love to talk about that deal. I understand that for right now for certain reasons we can't but i'd love to have an episode two on that and i think that would be great so for all of our viewers out there if you want to see max fisher back on the show make sure to uh mention it in the comments saying hey look we want to have max once he uh gets that big project out of the out of the way and he's obviously in a position where he can talk about it a little bit more